Hello and welcome to series three of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear stories and experiences of incredible women from diverse backgrounds and perspectives in science and technology. Our conversation gives us insights into some fascinating innovations, but we also get to relate. Here on Innovation, I give women a platform to be seen and heard because this exact conversation is in video format on YouTube. And honestly, every single episode is inspiring and uplifting because we hear about what they've learned along their life's journeys, both personally and professionally. This week, I talked to geoarchaeologist Dr. Judith Bunbury. I'm Judith Bunbury. I work at the University of Cambridge for a college called St Edmunds College, where I'm the head of education and welfare, which in Cambridge speak is known as the senior tutor. Uh, one day a week, I work for all the colleges um, on their welfare provision, supporting other senior tutors as we develop our welfare provision. And then I do a little bit of teaching in geology and archaeology. But my research interests are in Egypt, where I'm looking at geoarchaeological things and particularly uh, ancient climate change. Ancient climate change. That is fascinating. Can you tell me a bit more about what that is? So we initially, we were just looking at landscape. So we're taking a big site like the temples of Karnak in Luxor and trying to find out what the landscape was like when it was being built. And what we started to find was that the landscape had changed a lot. And the more we looked for evidence of landscape change, we realised that climate change is a driver of landscape change. And so we started to explore climate change. And then we noticed that there are some periods that are significantly wetter in Egypt in the past. And I'm really interested in how people confronted those climate changes and the effect they had on the society and technology in those times. It's really fascinating, your research, because it's very specific. When did you um, realise that this was something that you really wanted to focus in on? Um, all my training is geological training, and I just love field work. And so when someone said, do you want to come to Egypt and go out in the desert and look at a mine? I said, yeah, pick me. And then... That led to other invitations to look at other sites, which were probably way outside my expertise. But because I developed um, experience in talking to archaeologists, I became more useful as a communicator than as a for my specific geological skills. So I worked on the Nile Valley in sediments there and in the deserts on sediments and mining materials out there. So it's really I'm specialising in field work and fun. <laughs> It's kind of like such an interesting combination of sciences because um, there's the research side, you know, understanding the, the reality mm. uh, and how it got there and how it evolved. Um, but your research is informing um, innovation, it seems like. Um. Well, I think it's part of a, a sort of groundswell of interest in climate change. And I think how we react to modern climate change, which most people now believe in, if you like, uh, is, is affected by how we see past climate change. If we see climate change as something normal that people have always had to deal with and adapt to, and not to minimise our own contribution to that one way and another, then we have the tools to understand it better and interact more proactively and definitely in the past, in a period called the first intermediate period in Egypt, a lot of people got really miserable because there's a lot of 
landscape changed, sand poured into the Nile Valley, clogged up the river. And there were lots of people groaned about it. They were sort of, oh, why, oh, why is the river full of sand? Why, oh, why is everything miserable? But other people said, well, it's changed. We need to get with it and, you know, change the way we live, do something different. And some people fled and went somewhere else. And all of these are valid responses. But, you know, we need to understand the sort of interplay between those. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason why I've, I'm so interested in the fact that you're looking at ancient climate change is because I'm currently writing a book about um, climate technology. So mm. technology that we are developing today to mitigate or even reverse climate change, if that's possible. That's a fascinating um, subject. Yeah, and and it's it's it would be so fascinating to have a full conversation with you about what you've learned from the past in terms of climate change yeah well i've just been reading about you know roman climate change so there was a we now think there's a roman climate optimum around sort of up to 150 ad and as things started to dry out the romans were really proactive at adopting technologies to manage that and they bought they bought technologies from persia uh, they adapted what they did they paid spring keepers to maintain the flow of water they, they found lots of ways to interact and to manage and ultimately it got too dry and they had to abandon a lot of those sites but again it sort of it stresses the importance of resilience of being able to try new things and, and sometimes to adopt new technologies or develop new technologies and at other times to you know um, call it a day <laughs> say we've got to move on from here we've got to try something different yeah it brings the um charles darwin quote to mind which is that oh. it's not the strongest of the species that survives it's the those in in the species that are more the most adaptable i think that's a really interesting question i think when things are very stable being stronger and more competitive is a huge advantage. And I think we've seen, we've been through a stage like that before coronavirus, where people were becoming very focused, very competitive, and strength was you know, important. And through the pandemic, we've seen the value of resilience. And of course, we've also seen a sort of re-emergence of interest in the arts and humanities and the way in which, because you're a scientist, doesn't mean you only have to do science. Actually, uh, most successful scientists are involved in very creative work on drawing, painting, reading literature, playing music. Mass and music is historically you know, well known to be closely tied together. And I think it's those lessons you learn in one field that you carry across to other fields that allow you to be creative and resilient. Yeah, I, I love that. I'm, I'm going through a real um, kind of... Uh, I, I wouldn't say resurrection, but I'm I'm kind of um, really strongly drawn to um, art at the moment, um, and maybe it's because I'm looking at a lot of innovation, which I find so creative, and the influences of art and how science and technology can feed into art and inspire artists and, oh yeah I mean it's just so beautiful to watch that kind of cross-pollination oh yes and they're crying out for more sort of artistic approaches to engineering these days 
I, I worked for John Mears for a bit uh, in their buying office in London. And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed was every week we would get a sort of um, fashion technology magazine. And the, the technological advances, like the ability to knit boucle yarns, would then have an effect on fashion. So, you know, chunky knits became more accessible and more popular, and that changes the other clothes you wear. And I found that interplay between fashion, art, technology, retail, really fascinating nexus. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much in it. I mean, you know, there's just so much to discuss and so much to uncover, and, and, and it just... I could immerse myself in the kind of grey areas of the Venn diagrams uh, all day long. Um, That comes back to your earlier point, because why have I ended up such a specialist field of geoarchaeology? And I think my sense is that almost in academia, I have kind of umbrella ribs of the key subjects like physics, chemistry, maths, and there's a lot of competition and pressure in those areas. But between them, there are interstices where there were really interesting problems you could solve by combining elements of both the ribs subjects. And uh, then, then, you know, why compete and labour and duplicate, actually, if you can go somewhere new? And I love that creative space. So what if, uh, you know, if we think about this, what would what would happen? What does this mean? Uh, and I, that's one of the things I love about my work in Egypt is so interdisciplinary. I'm working with ceramicists who say, uh, why are they burying these porous jars in the ground and maybe to get water to come in and it's filtered by the jar? Or you know, to, to talking to bone specialists who are looking at the disease people have and what that might mean about environmental change when these bones are in the desert, but they're suffering from symptoms of things like malaria that you wouldn't expect in a dry place. Um, so there's all sorts of ideas that get thrown out because we're all looking with different eyes and seeing it in a different way and that that together we add so much knowledge it's pretty exciting uh it's it's so wonderful that we are talking about this because um well first of all we could talk for hours about the individual areas of expertise that you have and it would be fascinating conversations over long periods of time, I'm sure. But to stay focused um, in the short time we have together, um, I really want to delve into um, something that seems to be necessary in order to encourage um, interdiscipline, which is self-belief, lack of doubt. I mean... How do I put this? Um, you, you are in areas that are grey because you're bringing together various expertise. And um, no doubt you are often conversing with people that have very specific areas of expertise mm. and you're there to weave it all together. Mm. Um, And one of the things that I have found, having been very specific in fluid dynamics, an area of engineering, is that um, I've really lacked the confidence to say, what about considering this idea, Mm. which is not of like the established thinking of my discipline. Mm. Um, So put another way, um, to simplify uh, what I'm saying, how have you coped 
in standing up for what you believe in when it might be in a fuzzy area that exists between very clear areas of expertise? Um, I think I, I love having fun and have a slightly subversive streak. So, for example, when I was, I did a postdoc for six years in a geochemistry lab and it was quite specific. We were working really mainly on one element, which is strontium. And my, my PI, my uh, principal investigator was you know, urging me to be more serious and work longer hours and you know, like, you know I wasn't really pulling my weight and then uh, I was about to have I was already married and I was about to have children and I thought well, how can I flex my research that doesn't involve these incredibly long hours and on your feet all the time wreathed in acid fumes it just didn't seem like a healthy environment to be going into having children so I kind of flipped it on its head and I thought if I go and do expeditionary field work, you spend three days getting there, three days looking at the stuff, three days getting back, by which time you've written it up. And that's, you know, it's easy. So, and you can do it amongst children because I'm very lucky my mum, my mother-in-law did a lot of help in the childcare for those short bursts. And they were pleased to be granny in charge. And in fact, my mum came out to Egypt with me to look after the kids while I did the field work, which is great fun. Um, so I sort of went in, it seemed a little bit counterintuitive really in a way. But I thought, well, I'm doing this, you know, on the side. If it's not fun and I'm not working with other fun people who like to throw ideas around and do interesting things, then I then I don't need to do it. I'm, I'm not going to be there. And I was very lucky I've got you know, some really great colleagues and we had a wonderful laugh. And one of them, Omar's from Luxor and one Angus works in the Uppsala University now. We go around Karnak Temple saying, we're looking for the Nile. And it was a great joke. And people said, it's behind you. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we're looking for the ancient Nile. They might have been near here. And initially, people were very resistant. And they were sort of, no, 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 definitely not. It's never moved. In all the books, it's always in the same place. And uh, we were sort of we were sort of slightly having a laugh, you know, and Omar would order up some teas and then we'd do a borehole and everybody would laugh and we'd go away again. And then after a year or so, people would come and say, psst, you know, I think the Nile's been my dig, near my dig, and I've saved you some sediment, come and have a look. And it became sort of clandestine, rather sort of fun, subversive network of people who thought maybe the Nile had moved. And then we had a long battle to get it published. And so it took about four years because people saying, well, everyone knows that's not true. And of course, I think that's now my, as soon as people start that knee-jerk reaction, everyone knows not that's not right. That's when you know you've got something. You know, there's a, there's a fish on your hook. But you have to take time to sort of let it develop. So you just put little ideas out. And I love drawing really stupid reconstructions that everybody can see are stupid because it makes them laugh first and then it makes them think, hmm, <laughs> But key thing is you've got the idea in there before they thought that, no, that's got it wrong. Nobody thinks that. I think there's a lot, a lot of people really want to, it comes back to this competitive thing. They want to be seen to be right. They want the validation. And I don't really care that much. Yeah, I think the strong message there is um, to have conviction and to not get too down with it all you know to keep it light um yeah i think you're right to keep it light you know 
we're working with Sahara Desert and I'm saying, well, I think there were lake sediments here. And my colleagues are going, look, no, it's the Sahara Desert, duh. <laughs> and, and I started doing kind of silly reconstructions and sitting down in the middle of the desert and saying, gosh, no, look, here's the beach. Isn't it lovely sitting on the beach, have a cup of tea on the beach and make a joke out of it. And then eventually my colleagues were saying, yeah, come on. And then I said, yeah, okay, I'll give up. I think there's evidence that there's a, that there, there's a lake here but maybe it wasn't as recent as I thought, whatever. And they go, no, no, no. <laughs> we need the idea to explain all these other things we've observed. So it's, it's a little bit like dressing up. It's dressing up in ideas. You know, when children are dressing up, they're going to be a superhero or a nurse or a fire firefighter or whatever it is. And they're trying that idea on. What does it feel like to be a firefighter? And as a scientist, I like to try on an idea. What would it be like if the Sahara was full of lakes? For example, doesn't I'm not saying that has to be the case, but mm -hmm. what would it what would you see if it was like that? And do we see any of those things here? And there was a really tragic example I came across in the literature of people who'd said, you know, seen these things in the 40s and 50s. And then when sort of 60s and 70s came and there was a sort of bit of a sort of monolithic climate has never changed until now reaction, some of them actually dissed their own papers and they sort of denied their own evidence because they wanted, or they bought into the paradigm. And, and that, that for me was heartbreaking. And now I can, I'm happy for other people to have a different paradigm, but I want to be, have the integrity to understand what I understand from my data. And I might change that. And I think that's fine. I think you have to publish it and be prepared to defend it. And if people come up and say, oh, well, I don't actually agree with your interpretation because, and they present something new, that's great. You've learned something new. It's about being curious and learning and actually enjoying. I love having surprises. If the data shows you something you weren't expecting, that's a real thrill because then you can start to investigate why, why it wasn't what you expected. What, what was it you didn't know that you can find out more about? Oh, gosh. I, I just find what you're saying so refreshing and really, really uplifting because, first of all, um, what I'm talking about is really real to think that there are some people that had theories and they doubted their own theories oh. because of monolithic um, ideals. And, um, and so people abandoned their own ideas for fear of not being part of a collective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reason why that is just so refreshing to hear is because um, as someone who's kind of underrepresented, I think the underrepresented um, are constantly abandoning themselves and their ideas mm. because they don't want to be further outcast. Um, and so hearing what you have just said is so powerful because it's really important for the underrepresented to stand by how they perceive the world because they're not wrong they're no, just not in a majority if you're in a different place you have a different viewpoint and that's one of the lovely things about geology you go out into a, a an un, no, unknown landscape and my you know, the way i would go about making a map is just to wander around it and look at it from every angle and eventually it starts to feel like home because you've foreseen it from different angles and it's the same with the landscape of ideas by different people with different expertise different eyes seeing it through their eyes 
you mm. find out all sorts of new things. And I think it's a really neglected area in science is that um, scientific instinct and what your hunch is. And so when we were doing our sort of comedy gig, going around looking for the Nile or whatever it is, our latest thing is a lake in the Sahara or whatever, we always sort of put it out there to people, you know, you know review have you ever seen any evidence? And they'll sort of tend to say, yeah, I think this, I feel like that. And it's taking those quite nuanced, instinctive feelings that people have and then saying, okay, well, let's devise an experiment that tests that. And nine out of 10 times, you find that their hunch is right. They didn't know why it was right, but they had seen something. They know the land, they, they recognise the soils. Um, it's a lovely word in there. Egyptian Arabic Elise, which is the sort of black tarry sand that forms on the bottom of the Nile Channel. And they always get very excited when they find that in the boreholes because it you know, definitely there was a channel there. And people will people know their it's their landscape. And so I, I love sort of hearing all their hunches. And then you can turn that into a hypothesis and then turn that into an experiment. And who knows, you might find something new. That's such a humble approach. Um, and it, it kind of brings to mind the definition of humility, which I love, which is the ability to um, keep learning. Um, and I love that, you know, that there's so much, uh, there's so much curiosity in your approach and this like thirst to keep learning. Oh, and yeah. what comes with that is a real authority for what you already know. Well, I, um, I think I'm probably not particularly affectionate about what I already know. You know. I'd be more excited if you told me that what I know is about to change. I right. love that feeling when you learn something new and you suddenly integrate a whole new load of things into your thinking and it just changes how you see the world. It's, it's really exciting. Um, so how have you dealt with people that are, um, I guess you've already answered this, but how do you deal with people who tell you you are plain wrong? Um, well, for many years, my daughters both did karate. And although I didn't do it with them, I was on the benches watching. I learned that, you know, the most easiest way to throw your opponent is use their own weight against them. And so it's very common, especially, you know, as a female academic, in somewhere like Turkey or Egypt to be told that you don't know anything. In fact, my favourite one, I was at Ephesus, and some came up to me and said, you can't know anything, which I thought was wonderful. You just can't know anything. <laughs> can't know anything. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I think I would so I sort of take a perhaps slightly sympathetic view and, and think, well, that's actually your vulnerability if you think I can't know anything because you might be wrong and then if I do know something you might be tricked by me or fooled by me or you know, miss out. you lose out yeah you lose out right. by thinking I don't know anything you lose out on what you do know yeah exactly so it's a very you know it's a very narrowing worldview you talked about the value of curiosity of broadening your worldview and if you think that other people are less important or don't know anything, then you are, you know, you're narrowing your worldview and you're confining yourself and restricting what you can find out, which is really sad. So I tend to feel quite sorry for people who take that approach. But I'm, I'm also, you know, it's not going to change 
what I think, because you know, if they're coming at it from that position of weakness, why, why would their sort of anger or authority or make me change what I think on the basis of my data? I'd, 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 I was interested you mentioned the word confidence because I don't think of myself as at all a confident person. I'm nearly always overwhelmed by how little I know, how little I can do, <laughs> rather than um, feeling confident about anything, actually. Oh, gosh. Okay, that has made me blow a fuse in my mind. Um, purely because um, your approach is so compassionate um and the reason why I say that is because um a lot of women in STEM mm. in conversations I've had on this podcast which has been going for four years over four years now um a lot of the women I talk to some of which are hugely successful in their STEM fields um, have had to grapple with men um, shutting them down wow. and um, with all the strength in the world, um, they ha it's affected them. And you having compassion for those kinds of people who just want to shut you down because of their preconceived ideas, um, that's where I say you know, you, you come across being really confident because to have that kind of compassion takes confidence. Um, I mean, how would you deal with those who shut you down to the point where you can't get your own way or you can't get what you want? Well, um, I think that comes back to our conversation about creativity. You, know, you, you can be sort of going straight down the road, there's a roadblock. That, well, you know, you could stand there kind of pushing against it or you can go around. And I think one of the ways I've solved that in my own career is to, you know, if it gets a bit too com competitive and too shutty downy, I just head out into some sort of fresher space. And, you know, I think there are, Someone described it beautifully. He said, well, you were talking about the difference between what he called type one research, which is quite institutional and monumental and it, you know, it awards titles like professor and so on. And then there's type two research, which is much more sort of light on its feet. It's a bit more curious. You don't really know what you're going to find out, but you're just having fun exploring. And my experience is that you find virtually no shutterdowners in the type two researchers. They're all enthusiasts and they want nothing more, nothing can be better for them than to meet a fellow enthusiastic and have a good old jabber about whatever it is the topic of interest. And you meet some absolutely fantastic people. So I think if you start to come to those places where people are shutting you down, you know, head into some more fresh air. And I know that, I mean, geology is hilarious. And you know, when I was an undergraduate, only 10% of women in geology one of my fellow geologists at Durham wanted to do um, go to the Antarctic and they said, oh, no, we can't because we can only have all women teams. So she tried to recruit the rest of the women so we'd have enough people for an Antarctic expedition. <laughs> I, I feel the cold very badly, so I wasn't so keen on that. <laughs> um, but then I actually know the first woman who worked in the Antarctic as a geologist, you know, one of my um, 
friends here. And so there are more, and that's because the British Antarctic Survey decided they could have mixed teams. So there's more than one way to solve a problem. I mean, we know that from our experimental work. It's like mathematics. It doesn't really matter what method you use to get there. You should still get the right, the right the same answer, as long as you didn't make a sort of clerical error or a slip, which I'm very good at that. Do you know, it is, oh gosh, it's so, what you're saying is so powerful. Um, I don't even think maybe you realise it, but it's powerful because um, I think the reason why you have such a healthy attitude um, is because you're not, uh, you're not fixated on um certain things that many people strive to have so for example uh, put another way um you don't seem to be driven by ego you seem to be driven by this genuine authentic uh, need to find stuff out and you're not doing it for your title you're not doing it for you know, fame and fortune, power, prestige, whatever things that tend to drive a lot of us. And I think because you're independent of all of those drivers, mm. you're just uh, in the world, you're very free. I think so. But I mean, you know, the, I, I found it quite weird the last few years of people say, oh, no, how did you be a success? And I was like, well, I kind of accelerated away from success at every point. You know, I resigned from my postdoc because... I just wasn't going where I wanted it to go and it wasn't fun anymore. And you know, I've been told it has to be more serious and more earnest and harder work and that was just wasn't fun. So I resigned and I went off to work for a publisher and just did the stuff in my in Egypt in my holidays. And I'm really lucky I've got a very supportive family and I've had you know, a really supportive supervisor who is wonderful fun as a PhD student and full of yeah, full of fun actually and we had great time doing field work and tossing ideas around and you know, even having some pretty robust arguments about what we thought but you no know, the more you disagree the more you say well you know let's go for lunch <laughs> you know and it was a really great freeing atmosphere yeah. in terms of um, academic or scientific inquiry is enjoying it and and I think that's what's really important to me. The fact that it seems to have come with a certain amount of trappings of success is slightly bewildering, but I'm not complaining. Well, I wish science could recalibrate according to your approach, because I think that's what science should be. It should be full of curiosity, uh, exploration, discovery, discussion, um, you know, considering all different perspectives it sounds diverse it sounds inclusive all these buzzwords that we're all chasing after today yes but i think we, you know, we made a rod for our own back with the research excellence framework which is about metrics and esteem indicators and it, it really pushes people away from doing things for the fun of it i can't remember where the group is but there's a group who have a sort of play on a friday and just you know see have play with ideas and equipment and just see what happens. And, and they've been very, very productive. I think they came up with the first graphene monolayer because of the play. And I think in learning, 
gamification or play is so important because if you're playing, then if you lose, you laugh. If you were wrong, you know, you have a giggle. You know, my theory is that six kilometers over there, well, actually, in one case, I said, I think that 20 kilometers over there is a potential site. And my uh, director was like, okay, let's go and look. So, you know, get fitted up and <laughs> march across the desert <laughs> with a tent and sleeping bag and go and collect some samples and then stay the night in the freezing cold and march back the next day. But you know, if we got there and there'd be nothing there, all we could have done would be just laugh. Because what's there? <laughs> there was, there was a, a, over a metre great big heap of pottery. And we went, we basically sent the first group there on the strength of a red patch on Google Earth and someone's panoramio photograph that looked like it had some pottery in it. That was it. <laughs> Amazing. 40 kilometre round trip on a, on a whim, on a, you know, on a whim, really. But that's where, you know, the sort of, just have a go and see. And if it, if it doesn't work out, you have that in a game, you know, you try to toss a six to get out of um, jail in Monopoly or whatever it is. And if you don't get it, you laugh. You don't generally get that upset about it. And I think you know, science becomes, and learning is a game, which the reward is learning something new. And if you get it wrong, you have a laugh about it. And it seems a great way forward. And I love doing that with my students. I don't do as much teaching now, but when I do, we sort of have, you know, have games. Thank you for playing. <laughs> I mean, it takes a huge amount of confidence to play. So. Oh, yes. And it was so interesting, our conversation we talked a bit earlier about resilience. And during the coronavirus crisis, there were a number of sort of emergency committees that were formed up across the university and we were on Zoom trying to solve the emerging problems. And one meeting, we were waiting for someone to arrive, and everyone realised they had Lego in their office. And uh, it was it turned out, you know, these, these people who were resilient and came to the fore during coronavirus were all people who played and were creative and kept Lego at work, as you do. <laughs> Love that. Now, one of the reasons why I found you is because I saw a video on Twitter about welfare mm. at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I thought it was fascinating that a woman in the sciences also is very heavily across the welfare of her students. Um, how important is um, sort of mental wealth, well-being at Cambridge? Um, is this, you know, is it a department that just exists so that a box is ticked or is it a very proactive place? No, I mean, I think mental and physical well-being is fabulously important for all of us. We just talked about being able to be curious, being able to be surprised, being able to be compassionate. And you can't do that if you feel uncomfortable. And sort of, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I think the first thing we need is to feel that we're in a safe place. And so the colleges in Cambridge really prioritise that when people first arrive. Try to reassure them that this is a safe place, that this is their home, to direct them towards the various services that can support them if they need them. Things like food, you know, where to get food, how to get help if you need it, the nurse and so on. And then the next bit is being you know, sort of humanly comfortable, being able to sleep okay, 
getting good food, having some good company, taking some exercise, getting some fresh air. And then it's only only after you've met those conditions that you can actually have the courage to be brave and go on an intellectual adventure. So I think the colleges are more focused on the, you know, it's a home, it's a place where you kind of feel comfortable and then we send our students to the faculty to have their brains engaged. But I don't think that they can study and make the progress they do unless they're in a good place in their college and in their sort of their home life. So I really, really fight against the, the brain in a jar model where, you know, I just need to work, 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 work. It's interesting because at Cambridge, um, obviously you have to be so brilliant to go there. So these are extremely intellectually capable people that we're talking about. What kind of thing um, tends to make people feel unsafe in your experience? Well, I think people get very, very fearful about failure and lack of acceptance. I mean, the things we talked about already that are difficult for anybody to manage. And it's sort of almost universal. And I know it's not only changes, but people have some kind of imposter syndrome and, oh, you know, it's a mistake when I'm here. And they're worried. And the trouble is the more you worry, the more you don't sleep, don't eat properly, maybe social anxieties for some people is a big issue. They don't get out and meet people. So I try, try to think in terms of a sort of healthy diet. So in, in your plate of your day, is there some sort of you know, work where you achieve something, but is there also some healthy exercise, socialising, something that makes you feel good, like knitting or going for a walk? It doesn't playing to you. It doesn't have to be something where you're achieving. It's just something that makes you feel in a nice place. I quite like doing jigsaw puzzles. It's sort of peaceful and a task for your brain to kind of wear away but it doesn't have to be something where you're achieving and then you know are you eating properly and getting some exercise some fresh air and so, so I think for all of us is about having a sort of balanced diet of activities in our life yeah I love that um because I'm so passionate about supporting and encouraging underrepresented groups and we just have it ingrained in us that we um, are different Um, and it's difficult to sort of relate it's difficult to feel accepted it's difficult to feel safe because it's often we're often in situations that are very unfamiliar to us Mm. and things like that so um I think listening to you is so comforting because it feels like these are all things that can be addressed in the here and now it doesn't need to be a situation where you were born um you came from a different culture and therefore you will always feel unsafe like there are things we can do today to 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 feel safe yeah right? so- I know, I hear what you're saying, and I sort of recognise the experience when I first went to Turkey as a PhD student. Now, I was really lucky. My Turkish 
PhD supervisor said, we can't have a woman doing this. It's a very traditional area. No one will accept a woman scientist even working there. There will just be too much hassle. And I said, well, it's still like to go. And my um, English PhD supervisor said, oh, well, you know, we'll just send someone along with you to keep you company. Now, a male, a friend, student, somebody with you, so you're not on your own there because you could be quite vulnerable. And, and, and I, I think it'd be fair to say I had a really, really difficult time when I first went, went there. I didn't know what any of the cultural rules were. Um, I was in ostensibly a man's world, the public world in Turkey, especially rural Turkey, was very male-dominated 30 years ago. And I felt very lonely, very under pressure. And, and I did sort of struggle with learning Turkish initially. And then I met a friend, she's a farm, farm girl, about my age, she was incredibly kind and she just taught me how to survive in Turkey, what to wear, how to behave. And I, I ended up to sort of spend my um, days off farming on the farm with her, um, planting tobacco with the farm girls and getting a bit of crack, you know, racing up and down, planting things and having a laugh over lunch. And it was wonderful. And, and I realised that it's very, very easy to think of the ways in which you don't belong. But if you think of all of the ways in which all of the other people don't belong and form an alliance with them, then together you are those kind of creators, a bit like we were saying about research, you are those creative people. And you have the strength of having each other's perspectives. And I can remember sitting with Aisha watching the Saturday night Turkish language film, which was a big sort of, uh, highlight of the week. And the woman came in and she said, oh, there's the baddie. I said, well, wow, she hasn't said anything. How do you know she's the baddie? She said, well, the skirt's above her knees, obviously. And I thought, oh, yeah, I need to get some longer skirts. <laughs> Just I've been going around, you know, portraying myself as an archetypical baddie everywhere I went. No wonder people reacted badly to me. All I needed was an extra six inches of skirt. <laughs> and I was going to suddenly start portraying myself as a goodie. And I've learned from her how to sort of appear, as my, my English supervisor put it, as a nice, normal Turkish girl. Mm. And yeah. uh, he was actually very worried because he thought I might sort of just disappear and become Turkish. I did work there after I finished my PhD for a couple of years, but then I came back to... You're fluent in Turkish. Um, I'm, I'm, I sound quite erudite for a Turkish farm girl. I'm not making any claims <laughs> for my, my, my city city Turkish <laughs> wow that's so amazing and it's really um oh gosh honestly I can't tell you how deeply um your words are are resonating but also really they're so comforting and so uplifting because I think um there can be a tendency to kind of be in a woe is me you know I'm different kind of Great, there's a great, yeah, a great quote, quote from Maya Angelou in the paper, Angelou in the paper this week. And she was saying, you know, self-pity is like a feather bed when you first lie in it, but it comes harder and lumpier the longer you stay there, <laughs> something like that. And I thought that was really quite clever. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect because I think, um, you know, it can, it's great that we have movements like Black Lives Matter and, you know, 
it's really good for highlighting the issues and then it's like okay let's not get bogged down with this now let's let's find creative ways to make the most of it and what i hear in everything you say is this real embracement of difference you know in all the times where you have been different you've kind of said great you know let's let's use this to my advantage, I'm not going to be uh, weighed down by it. I'm going to embrace it. Um, and I think that's so such an empowered attitude. Um, and it allows you to not get stuck in the bottleneck. Mm. I, I think it doesn't, it doesn't help you to get stuck. And I, I, when I find myself getting angry with someone for sort of you know, blocking me that you were talking about earlier, I, I sort of have a sort of mental exercise where I think, well, you know, why is it that they're what is it about them that they're blocking for is it because they're worried that their idea isn't good enough do they feel vulnerable or what you know why why is that and then you, and then i have a sort of thing you think well what, if you could have one thing for that person that would help them feel better about this problem what would it be in that case you know make them feel more confident about their data or better able to articulate why they think their idea is better than yours and then you think, you know, how much do, would I benefit from applying that to myself? And then often I think the reason why you're in battle with them is because you both have the same blind spot. And if you can sort of uh, wish that gift upon yourself that they need, often it helps you to sort of go around the obstacle and, and leave it, forget it. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that is everything. Um, as, as a woman in engineering, you know, I graduated at a time where I was so young and so qualified, mm. um, and so massively lacking in a sense of, um, appreciation for what I do bring to the table. I was very bogged down with what I didn't have compared to my peers, you know, I was so different from my peers and I just thought that that put me at a disadvantage. And advantage. I wish I had heard you back then. You know, I mean, it's taken me almost 20 years to get to this point where I now realise that being different is, is, is so important because it provides that different perspective. I didn't think that back then. Well, I know I, I had a similar experience. You know, when I was an undergraduate, geologists were male, tall, wore lumberjack shirts and drank pints and had beards. And, and I used to make a joke and say, well, you know, I'm drinking the pints. I've been rubbing baby bio on my face, but the beard hasn't come up yet. But at least I can buy a lumberjack shirt and you know, sort of make a joke of it. And I think people are surprised that a five foot female person specialises in field geology. But then, you know, if it comes to crawling down, crawling into a hole, into a collapsed monastery or something, I've got the advantage because I'm smaller. You know, there's, there are pluses and minuses. And I think that one of the things I've learned on doing expeditionary field work, everyone's so good. And I, my, my Achilles heel is that I'm not good with heights. But I know my colleagues will step forward and say, we'll climb up there because they know I'm not good. But equally, if they're not good with spiders, I'm saying, well, I'll go and you know, wrestle with the spiders. That's no problem. That's not going to bother me. And between us all, we can do it. But we can also 
support each other's weaknesses and to do that with a certain amount of sort of uh, generosity is massively helpful and I, I can remember trying to come down the stairway with one of my colleagues and he said you know I'll take the baby because he knows that I struggle with heights and he just whizzed ahead and I followed on but if it had been me holding my baby and resting with the downward stairwell I would have really freaked <laughs> he just kind of took it in control and I know he has hearing problems so whenever we're in the confined space he gets quite panicky because it's too much noise. So I always go into the, you know, if there's a meeting in the trench and there's lots of people speaking different languages all at once, I'll go in and do that and leave him outside so that he isn't stressed out about that. So it's about working with each other and supporting each other this, you know, with compassion is a word you picked up earlier so that the whole team gets through. And um, there's a great um, saying, I think it's a, an African saying about if you want to travel fast, travel alone but if you want to travel far travel in company as teams who support each other and go along together we can get so so much further than if you just dash off on your own being machismo <laughs> yeah you know i i feel like you've said so much and it really i would love to just sit with what you've said and really reflect on it because um, so much of your attitudes go really deep um, and compassion is something that just needs space and time to cultivate. Um, so thank you so much for your refreshing attitudes. I feel like you, with all the compassion, and with all the tolerance and um, all the kind of comedy um, that you have, you are so driven by this deep um, thirst for your research. So at the core of it all, that's what's driving you, like this, this need to acquire more knowledge. Um, and it's just such a beautiful combination to see um, in person talking with you today so thank you so much for your time it's really been nice to meet you and talk to you thank you Jean. thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can the more ratings and reviews then the more interest from those trusty algorithms which could help to increase the reach of this show and you can watch the video recording of this conversation on youtube on my new series called esteemed it's all about self-discovery, self-evolution and inclusivity on innovation. Let's all strive to be in the best versions of ourselves and celebrate others being themselves too. As always, be kind and loving and I wish you all a great week.